You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, go to simplify.us. No Simplify ETFs will be discussed in this episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today I've got my friend Alex Gurovich, the founder and CIO of Hante Investments. Alex, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's awesome to have you back on. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Awesome, Alex. So you know, let's you know, let's get started with sort of the story of the day. So one thing that sort of happened over the last couple of weeks uh, that's caught everyone's attention has been the FTX um collapse. So I just wanted to first um just kick it off by getting your take on it because I think that because I think it's going to be interesting with sort of your experience um trading financial markets. So you know, one like did that sort of surprise you? You know, what 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 are your thoughts or what sort of your take on it? Well, first I will be honest. This is outside the area of my expertise. I don't know much about crypto exchanges. It's not like something I focus my expertise on. What I think interesting is to seeing is this idiosyncratic or is this uh, kind of harbinger of bigger problems or some other problems in the system. What I find is interesting with various collapses and um, fraud exposures or over leverage exposures typically start happening, popping up at the end of a cycle. Because for example, we had the whole Exxon uh, problem happening, uh, uh, happening like this a big, this whole uh, um, collapse and controversy and bankruptcy happening in the, end, in the end of 2000, as far as I remember. And that was kind of right before the internet collapse and their, and their um, rollover of those things. Uh, there was also like MCI. I'm I, I'm like can't even it was like twenty or twenty years ago. I can't even say directly, but there was. I remember in the year two thousand and early two thousand one, there was a slew of various like problems and scandals and bankruptcies, right? I guess two thousand seven there was a subprime crisis, which also exposed some company some companies like Countrywide collapsed very painfully and turned yeah. out to be houses of cards and. You could just kind of make an argument that what happens is when there is a, uh, a flood of liquidity, all sorts of businesses pop up, all sorts of leverage models pop up, and they tend to be over-leveraged, over-stretched. And it's unavoidable that any kind of uh, profitable industry, there will be some excesses. And it could be fraud, it could be just careless behavior. I'm not here to judge any specific instance. But uh, but at the end cycle, when liquidity starts getting drained, yep. this whole thing about the tide going out, right? Uh, problems are getting exposed, and then you see more of those issues. Yep. Suppose, like for example, same thing with Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff was running for decades, but what exposed him was 2008 crisis. So yep. I think uh, it could be idiosyncratic, but it could be indicative of the fact that reversal and liquidity exposes weak links in the system. Yep, 100%. And I think it's the goes back to the Warren Buffett quote. It's only when the tide goes out that you see who's been swimming naked. So 
Um, a hundred percent. So, you know, moving on. Um, so, you know, one thing that we observed last uh, week was sort of the inflation number and everyone sort of got really excited about it. And of course, you know, one inflation number can't tell you much, but just in the broader picture, you know, we've seen housing slow down. We've seen, um, we've seen manufacturing slow down and, you know, we finally saw a softer inflation number. Uh, you know, what, so, you know, what sort of, uh, I know that you're sort of, uh, you, you are in the transitory camp of inflation. So, you know, one, do you sort of have an update on your thinking? Um, and then two, you know, you, you, you sort of think that we're going to be heading towards a deflationary depression. That's sort of your most likely event. So one, is that still your most likely event? And two, um, has the advent of fiscal policy sort of, uh, sort of changed that, um, the increasing use of fiscal policy that we've observed over the last couple of years? Well, first of all, yes, I'm still in the camp of thinking that the risk of deflationary depression is much higher than the market price of it. Let's put it at least this way. Or, or, or And the chances of disinflation are overwhelming and the chances of rates going to zero, in my opinion, are overwhelming and they keep being increased, increasing the more hawkish the Fed sounds. Yeah, just to answer your questions in order, I think I would want to have a correction to my inflation transitory view, which I was aspiring maybe even a year ago still, but I want to, I think that has to be, I had to rethink it. It does not change my current outlook or everything that reinforces my outlook, but I would have to really clarify what I mean by this a little more. And I will get back to it if you're interested in it. But um, I also, as you say, I would not put, it's very easy when, for example, if my long-term view is that inflation is going to turn around, and, uh, as you say, there are a lot of signs on the market that there are slow, slow, uh, for example, the mobility of housing market. It's not even that housing market is going down, but housing sales and movement of houses is really right now arrested because people don't want to sell their houses because they're locked into low-rate mortgages and people cannot buy their houses because they cannot afford new mortgages. That not just affects housing market, but it affects a whole bunch of other businesses which like construction and uh, real estate agents and furniture businesses, remodeling businesses, all sorts of stuff, which appliances that is not happening as people not moving as much. Yeah. That kind of arrest and mobility, an example, like falling used car prices are a good uh, leading indicator. So there is a lot of stuff that tells us that the turnaround may be coming soon, but it's it's a, all of those indicators, first of all, indicators are mixed and there are still things which are look inflationary. Mm -hmm. And I think the consumer balance sheet still look good. So it's a matter of not getting overly excited over one number, knowing that, yes, this will happen eventually, but you cannot put all your chips on the table that it's going to happen next month. For example, okay, we had one downside surprise on inflation back in summer. Then we had two upside surprises. Then we get that one downside. How do I know what the next surprise on next month on inflation will be? Yeah. Exactly. So you have to be very careful about not getting overexcited about it. What I try to do is just really focus on what I know will happen in two years and not get too much hung up on what's going to happen next month. Yep. And if you want me to elaborate on the transitory view, I can. Go ahead. Yeah, for sure. I think I was making a mistake, honestly, in 2021. Because transitory, in my mind, transitory was not about... Uh, how long it lasts even, or how deep the inflation is. The question about transitory versus entrenched whether inflation is self-reinforcing or self-arresting. That is, will more inflation lead to even more inflation or will more inflation eventually control it, kind of curb itself? And I think in 2000, and what I thought was happening in 2021 that we had this 
huge post-COVID bump in inflation. And it would be a temporary event. And then that would just unwind. Even the prices stayed at this bump price, like once the supply chain problems and like an initial rush of consumption goes over, we would have actually very moderate inflation numbers. That was indeed my view. That is not at all what is happening. And when you're wrong, you have to admit that you're wrong. So why was I wrong? My guess, the reason I was wrong is that I've spoken a, bit, a little bit in the recent months. Uh, the reason I think I was wrong is because what I underestimated the fact that if you have actual inflation running at like eight, nine percent and interest rates at zero, you're creating extremely easy monetary conditions. You're having negative nine percent real interest rates. We just such a low interest rates actually very inflationary because it makes it encourages people to take out loans, spend more, build inventories, doing various things. So we just kind of continue to reinforce the system. Now, that is that is what I think tripped up me and maybe other people and in, in, in Team Transitary. Now, somehow, interestingly, that process has arrested itself because inflation has stabilized, even though it's totally celebrated that it's going down. Inflation is stabilized. And what is very important to understand, the fact that inflation stabilized has nothing to do with Fed raising rates yet. Absolutely nothing. It couldn't possibly because the lag of policy is too long. Yep. The rate hikes this year could not have yet affected inflation this year. So inflation stabilized, which makes me think that once the current tightening of financial condition fits through the system, it'll start trending down. But the reason why it will be so pernicious, the downtrend in inflation, in my opinion, is the opposite of what I just said. As inflation will be falling, real interest rates will be rising very rapidly. Because not only the Fed is, because right now we have two opposite things. Fed is tightening, not even mentioning balance sheet reductions, but at the same time, inflation is falling. So those, it's kind of in both directions we're having real rise in interest rates. And as inflation will start falling actually considerably and goes to like levels of 4%, 3%, 2% in backwards looking mirror, like they will be might be saying, oh, year on year is still 5%, but the current inflation is already zero. And if it turns negative, they will no way they will have time to catch up on cutting interest rates to that. So we'll get on a very restrictive. And since I believe that it's going to go negative in a year or so, it's going to be very hard for them not to be restrictive. That's why it's going to be very hard for them to navigate out of it. And I wanted to address, if you wish, I also can address the last thing you mentioned, the fiscal policy. Yeah, I actually don't see a mere major fiscal expansion in the United States. We might see more of fiscal expansion in Europe, but I feel... If, nothing, if anything, fiscal policy is much less aggressive than it was, for example, two years ago when it was a massive spending of COVID. And now that the Congress is divided, I think there will be a lot of, there won't be a reason to, my, it's not like a political statement. I'm not saying what's right or what's wrong. I'm just saying that logically, I wouldn't expect anything radical on the side of fiscal policy in the next few months until it gets too late. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So I think so. So so just, so just on that last note, so you're saying that um, overall, so considering that the U.S. Congress is divided right now, I think Republicans have the House, Democrats have the Senate. Um, it's going to be very difficult to pass any sort of fiscal program um, in order to fight sort of a in order to fight, say, um, a big disinflation or maybe even potentially deflation. Yeah, I think some things will, of course, get passed. 
but and if things will get really dicey, something will be done, but not as aggressively. Like a lot of aggressive spending measures will be hard to pass. Harder. I'm not saying they can't, yeah. but it will be harder to pass. So incrementally, I'm less concerned over fiscal policy being too profligate. And I don't even want to mean it in a bad way, profligate, but just really expensive, right? That concern, I think, is not really very high right now in US. Yeah. But it's definitely, having said that, it's definitely the way I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, you know, just so so on that note, so, you know, do you think within, say, say by, say, Q423 or uh, Q1 2024, um, we may potentially see negative interest rates in the in the United States? You know, what, what do you, what, you know, what would you say are the possibilities of that or the probabilities of that? I would say more than 50 percent. Wow. That's 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 very interesting, and and you know we, you know with these kind of theses, you know do you uh, and you know your special uh, your speciality tends to be within the interest rate market. So you know would you would you tend to try and play this through um, treasuries and just euro dollars, or would you um, you know how would you how would you think about expressing these? Well, kinds? when my views are so extreme, I be, I usually start playing it through euro dollar auctions because if you think, for example, that I think there is like a fifty percent chance of certain view being realized. And I think I get 10 to 1 payout, uh, 10 to 1 payout if my view is being realized, it becomes a very good bet. Mm -hmm. What's been very hard, I mean, you can be also, I think it is a place where it's not pretty, not safe, but I think it's a good place to be outright long treasuries, euro dollars in your favorite sectors. But what the market has proven again and again this year that you don't really know where the bottom is. Yep. It's good to be, sometimes you have assets which act as options on their own. Like you only know that it can go that far down and you have a huge upside and then you don't need options. You just buy the asset, right? Yeah. Or if that you think the asset is going to five tuple in price. But if you buy your Adola future and you think it's going to go 300 basis, basis points up, but it can also go 200 basis points down if you're wrong, all of a sudden your risk reward is not as great. So you have to get a little more creative, at least with a portion of your risk too. Because... This is kind of the core of my strategy. I know, I try to see what are the likely target distant points in the future. Not distant, but like medium term future, like two years out or three years out, where we're going to land. Suppose I know that, and of course, I never know it with 100% certainty, but even if I have God given knowledge, that's where it's going to be. You still need to survive to get, it, to get there. Like you can know for certain, you can have yourself from the future tell you, this is the price. But if you put the position on today, and it goes so much out against you today that your capital gets wiped out, you're never gonna be able to hold on the position till that till that future price that you're absolutely sure it will reach. And in fact, a lot of markets really operate like this. There are tons of things in the macro markets. For example, in this example, people might disagree with me, but there are a lot of transactions that we kind of know which way the expected value is. It's all about really holding on to realize it. Could you give could you give sort of an example of um this like what, what do you mean by when you say that there are those kind of transactions? Well, there is a lot of transactions which are used for more by like usually by sophisticated hedge funds, which have to do with convergences of various um interest rates and prices of various bonds. Like it could be like, okay, this bond is more expensive than this bond by 30 basis points, and there is no particular reason, right? 
yeah. or like bonds versus futures, or like some curve kink, like where the wise 20-year sector has higher rates than like 15-year sectors, 25-year sector. Those have absolutely no economic reason, right? They created by various flows. And if you hold them like for five years, they'll slide down the curve and that'll go away. There is like more than 90% chance that if you hold it for a certain amount of years, it will converge. Yeah. There are a lot of trades like this on the market. This is not, you don't have to be a genius to find those trades. This is not like you, uh, I don't know if you read the book when genius fails about uh, LTCM. LTCM. And they were, that essentially what they were doing, they were finding a lot of those convergence trades, which had indeed very high chance of working out in the long run. But in the short run, the capital you needed to hold those trades proved to be insufficient. Mm -hmm. And honestly, there are some trades that, I can have an extremely high certainty that they're going to work out, but I will still not enter them because even though you almost surely will make money, you don't get enough return on capital because it will tie up too much. Like exactly, the risk yeah. is too much on mark to market. Kind of, you can think about this as just buying um, U.S. Treasury bonds that guaranteed yield, but some people say that's not enough yield on the capital you have to commit. Right? Same thing. Like there are trades on the market which are pretty sure to make money in the long run, but not worth the capital. No, 100%. And I think, you know, that goes back to the point you said about LTCM because you had these small spreads um, that you could you know, arbitrage out, but then you had to take a huge amount of leverage. And, you know, that's that's what LTCM did. And, you know, they took a lot of leverage and um, ended up running into problems when Russia defaulted. So 100%. Um, and and you know and you know you know going back to one uh, you know going back to uh, something we saw earlier in October, we saw when Liz Truss became prime minister. Um, she and you sort of touched upon this when you were on Macro Voices, but you know we saw List Trust um come in, and you know when she talked about her fiscal expansions, we saw the we saw the gilt market react, and we saw the UK pension fund nearly uh, UK pension fund system nearly blow up, and you know to counteract that the BOE stepped in, and you know they sort of immediately shifted their QT policies to QE again, started buying bonds in order to stabilize the market and ensure that the pension funds didn't blow up. Um, you know, is the one, you know, one, uh, do you think there is the possibility of this kind of systemic event happening in the U.S.? Um, and two, I think, and, and I think this might be the more interesting question. Do you think in, in the case of this event or in the case of something like March 2020, or even say, say a little bit less extreme than March 2020, uh, the Fed just pivots away from, you know, their QT and their financial condition and tightening, and then, you know, sh shift towards monetary loosening again? Well, I think they will shift, but I don't think it will be because of any kind of crash on the bond market. Of course, that cannot be um, ruled out, but what we've been seeing much more than actually a continuous flattening of the yield curve in the U.S., we're seeing that the inevitable market forces are showing that current tight policy will lead to inevitable losing in the future. That's how U.S. market tends to trade, honestly. It seems to... And, there is a global shortage of dollars right now as dollars are getting sucked out of the system. And it seems like that type of situation, it's very opposite because what happened in UK, we had Sterling crashed like 103 against dollar. I think that was the intranight low, right? So uh, we had like very, very long-term low, very, very different, far from what you would think some kind of like purchasing price parity, right? Yep. Which is probably should be like two. So it's a really, really... <laughs> really, really different. Uh, uh, well, I don't actually know what it should be, but I've just... Just an example, uh, yeah. Not one, let's put it like this, not parity, to dollar. So, uh, and then, so that's a very different environment. They also have, they also in UK, 
that there is a self-reinforcing problem because the energy importer, right? So when your currency falls and your energy imports become more and more expensive, it becomes harder and harder. You need dollars to buy energy. And you ask, first of all, you ask as it's all in dollar terms, energy is very stable right now. And US is not even an energy importer so much. So I don't see any reasons. If anything, if both market sells off while the Fed is hiking, they're only happy about that because that increases that kind of it's doing the work for them. Mm -hmm. So I don't see why they would mind interest rates going up. That's the objective of tightening. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I just don't see um, the same mechanics and the same problems in the US. I think what will make them turn around is when they see um, what will make them probably pause is when they see inflation numbers cooling down and what will make them turn around and start cutting when they see employment weakening. Yep. Exactly. And so, you know, so, you know, there's, there's two things that I wanted to touch up on. So let's come to employment later. So the first thing that I, I wanted to discuss was sort of the US dollar. And so, you know, the story throughout, uh, throughout this year um, has been sort of King dollar, King USD, the USD wrecking ball, etc. And so, you know, the USD has been incredibly strong um, throughout the course of this year. Um, this has primarily been led by one, uh, you know, the Fed hiking, but also, you know, sort of a flight to safety, etc. Um, you know, how do you, you know, how do you, you know, how long do you think the sort of U.S. the U.S. dollar bull trend lasts? And, you know, do you, do you see, uh, do, you, do you see any opportunity in being long the dollar, um, at least at this point in the trend? I think I, I would be cautious about being overall long dollar because uh, there is this thing which is actually kind of consistent with what happened in the last few days, like a very severe correction on the dollar. It's actually, if you look historically, there is this weird thing and I can't really fully explain what's happening, but there is a tendency at the very end of the hiking cycle before the last hikes for both the bond market and the dollar to crash together. Like if you look at February 2018, for example, mm -hmm. there was a simultaneous coordinated crash of dollar and bond market. And same thing actually in uh, 07, 08, before like the turn of the cycle, dollar actually kind of bottomed out. So what I'm saying, it's a little hard to like tell what it, it's, it's a little bit dangerous to just say, oh, Fed raises rates, dollar going to go stronger, Fed cuts rates, dollar going to go weaker. Because for example, when Fed switches to easing environment, very often dollar can actually continue strengthening because people start buying treasuries. Great, right? They're cutting rates, treasuries are getting more attractive, right? Yield curve steepens, which makes it better carry for people to hedge their currencies. So there's a lot of reason when Fed cuts rate, cuts rates for people to strengthen for US dollar to be supported. So there could be like weird price action on the dollar. So I think for the now, of course, situation is dollar supportive because we're sucking out dollars out of the system. If nothing else, the quantitative tightening continuously sucks dollars out of the system. And that is, and also I think there is a process of loan collapsing. What I mean by loan collapsing is that people pay down their loans, those people have good financial conditions, not people who are in trouble, mm -hmm. not like the FTXs of the world, but the people who are in good situation, they say like, okay, I had a loan against my inventory now, now the interest rates are too high, I'm not gonna, now I'm gonna reduce inventory and pay down my loan. Or some people might say like, I had a variable mortgage on my house, now it's going up, I'm gonna either sell my house or pay down the cash, my mortgage. Those right. are like, strong players who are beginning to reduce their balance sheets because 
having an extended balance sheet is not so great when rates are 4% versus 0%. It's great to have balance sheet when rates are 0%. When it's 4%, it's beginning to bite because 4% is risk three, risk free. Obviously, funding costs for most people are high. So it's beginning to bite. Yeah. And people who have luxury of manipulating it will collapse the balance sheets. Now then, the hard part will come when people who don't have luxury start getting squeezed because liquidity is starting to go down, right? So that is that is what I see as the process, and that all process is dollar supported because it reduces the amount of cash on the system. I, I would be I would pick and choose the where I want to be long dollar. My favorite is long dollar against China right now. Mm -hmm. Yep. Because I think this is where we kind of have the central bank trending in the opposite direction. We have a significant slowdown in China, and despite the fact that China corrected, they did not correct as much as like compared to euro, compared to uh, sterling or compared to yen, China still looks pretty strong. The currency looks relatively strong, like it's relatively high. So there is space for downdrift. Mm -hmm, got it. Yeah. Um. You know, going going back to the point you made initially. So you said that um there was a tendency for the U.S. dollar and the bond market to crash um prior to the uh, prior to the Fed um nearing its uh, nearing the end of the hiking cycle. So when you say bonds crash, do you mean the do you mean the yields crash or the prices crash? Because over the last couple, oh, I mean, I mean, I mean, the prices crash. The yields go up and okay, kind of, and we might yet have that event. You could argue that we'd already had this event this summer, or like this fall. Yeah. But again, I don't want to write off it. It you never know until post factum where is the last rinse out. You could say that we already had it, right? The bonds already rinsed out, and now we've seen some support on the bond market, but. It's very important not to get over my skis here. And this is, I'm saying it much more for myself and for the audience. And keep reminding myself, not, I have, I really want to be long duration. I want to write the bonds to yields, which I think will be lower than the, even in 2020. Mm -hmm. And for more protracted period of time, I think we're at the beginning of the mother of all bond bull markets. <laughs> yeah. And, but you don't want to miss it because you wiped out your capital before it even started. <laughs> No, no, I completely, no, completely agree. And and so the other point that you made earlier was with respect to with, with regards to employment. And so you know, well, the one thing that we have seen that's been pretty strong has been, um, the employment numbers. And so, um, so so you know, one, you know, what is it that is keeping employment so tight? And so you know, what is going to have to, you know, what is the straw that breaks the camel's back? Because we know that once, uh, once employment starts to break, you know, the Fed starts to get a little bit more dovish. They try, they start to lean a bit more dovish, and they've been counting on the. Um, labor market so far. So, you know, what is the straw that breaks the camel's back when it comes to um, employment? Well, it's a very slow and incremental process. The reason why employment has not been suffering because consumption is, personal consumption is pretty strong. And the reason personal consumption is strong that we had two years of really handing out cash to people. Yeah. That process is very slow to unwind. But I believe this process is grindingly unwinding. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for me to say we're seeing like right now, most of the job cuts are happening in technology sector, but we'll probably see job cuts on other sectors too slowly. I think what is happening right now, what, what, I, what I'm concerned is happening is not concerned, but like I think I don't, I cannot give you data for that yet. That's my mm -hmm. kind of layperson's view that we're, we're seeing the beginning of a massive erosion of job market. Because think about all those job openings sitting there. There's yep. a huge amount of job openings that are not filled. So what's happening is that people are not willing to pay enough 
to draw people to those jobs, right? Yep. They yep. cannot make their businesses work if they pay people enough. So they advertise for certain salaries, but those are not enough to attract people. We have a huge amount of job openings and notice that it's persistent. Now, what is happening? They're not getting filled. What's, what does that mean? It means that companies are learning to do without those employees. And what I think is we're in the process of companies slowly learning to do without a huge amount of employees. Mm -hmm. And I think when when the tide will turn and people, people's balance sheets will start getting, personal balance sheets will be eroded enough that people say like, oh, now we have to get jobs. They might find that those jobs are no longer there. Mm. Because, job, because people are finding sneaky ways to reduce the stuff like like some restaurants, for example, switching to just take out models. A lot of businesses are closing. Some businesses are like looking for various automatic, like at the same time, like it's spurs on automatization and various kind of shortcuts. Like you know, just for example, a switch that a lot of stores now you can check out electronically on yourself. That's by the way, if stores stop stop employing people in the checkout counters. That's a huge slice of employment in this country that is under pressure, potentially. And that is already beginning. I'm seeing, of course, I'm like living in my county, California. Maybe it's on the forefront of that happening in Europe. It's happening already much more so. But in the U.S., it's still a big slice of employment. Checkout counters, re, uh, rental agency counters, all those places where people, I'm just giving us an example. I think slices of jobs will start getting eliminated. It's a very slow process. I don't know how long it will take for it to play out, but that actually also tells me that disinflationary pressures will persist for several years. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, so, so, you know, just to push back on that, and I don't fully agree with this point, but, you know, in theoretically in economics, there's the concept of a wage price spiral where companies will are happy to pay higher wages, but then, end up, but then to counteract that, they increase their prices. And a lot of these bond vigilantes, especially on Twitter, have highlighted um, that sort of dynamic potentially happening in the U.S. where one, seeing how tight the labor market is, you know, the, 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 they'll boost the earnings, but then at the same time, they'll boost prices. And this is something that could sort of feed on itself. Um, I don't know, uh, you know, one, what, one, you know, what is sort of your take on that and why that won't? Well, it is definitely happening to an extent. And definitely, if anything, the rise, uh, one of the argument, counter arguments to my argument uh, that there will be a slowdown in the economy is that people will only start getting better off if inflation moderates because uh, while wages keep going up because you'll have a rise in real wages. But also, yes, definitely wage pressure exists. But my counter argument is the same as my counter argument to the idea that energy prices have to go up because people say there is not enough energy and to sustain global growth, energy prices have to go up. And I'm saying, no, it's not that energy prices have to go up, it's that global growth will not be sustained. Yeah. Same argument for me against employment. Yes, to sustain global, to sustain production, to sustain the economy, you might need to raise wages. But the my very what I think is more likely to happen that the economy will not be sustained. And the reason why I think that is the case is because in order, see, if you think about like economy as the whole system, to pay higher wages, to pay higher prices, for all of this, you need to have more dollars in the system, just more dollar bills floating around. Because if you start paying somebody twice more, there, and this, this person pays for other things twice more, this is twice more dollar bills circulating. And right now, dollars are being drained out of the system. So people would have liked, people want to pay higher wages, but eventually that process will start coming to a screeching halt. That's, and what's going to happen is that, yes, maybe people will demand higher wages, 
but the amount of businesses and operation will keep shrinking. Instead of saying, same thing with energy, instead of paying more for gas and oil, some manufacturing will say, we'll just close in doors. We're just not gonna work in it. We're not gonna do it. Are we gonna change our process? And this will be to either employ less people or employ less energy. Because those two inputs are getting very expensive for people. And they will, so the price, what I'm saying again, the price spiral going up requires monetary accommodation, the ability to grow monetary supply. But right now it's actually shrinking. That's what makes me think. It's not to completely negate this argument. It's just to say that there is another side of it. 100%. And, and you know, what I, what I find interesting is that, so you, the typical conventional view, um, say on FinTwit, or just, uh, just in general, the consensus view is that over the last 10 years, we've not seen enough CapEx in places like oil. And so therefore, you know, over the next, over the long run, uh, say the next decade, um, we're likely to see oil um, and oil prices rise. Um, and I think, and you know, uh, you, you, you clearly disagree with that. So, you know, one, I wanted to, I, would, I just wanted you to share your thoughts on uh, why we want, why, why, you know, those people tend to be, you know, those people are wrong and, um, or at least the probabilities of oil um, going lower or higher than the probabilities that, you know, it's going to be at say $150, $200 a decade from now. I, you know, I don't have a strong view. Actually, a decade from now, I'm quite bearish on oil because I think a decade from now, the energy substitutes will be will be meaningful. But in the horizon of like five years, I think it could go, what I'm trying to say, it can go either way because the argument for short, I, because I think that the oil price will not go up because people will not be able to afford to pay it. Right. Okay. Like the world will not be able to afford to pay for energy, high energy prices. Hence, uh, hence, the global growth will have to slow down. This is what I'm basically saying. With not sufficient amount of dollars in the system, people won't be able, because uh, more or less oil trades in dollars, right? There will be not enough dollars to pay for oil mm -hmm. to sustain current level of global growth. Yep. Okay. Um, moving on. Moving on. Let's talk a bit about China. And so you know, you mentioned um, that the, uh, that your favorite pair um, to try to buy the dollar against was you know buy, buy dollar sell yuan. Um, you know, overall the trade is uh, overall the, uh, the the sort of the short Chinese yuan trade seems to be quote unquote obvious. You know, they have their property bubble finally bursting. Domestic demand is weak, and then on top of that, you have uh, you have the monetary policy of of China going against what the rest the rest of the world is doing. So you know, the U.S. is hiking. Um, the uh, the Canada hiking, etc. But China's busy cutting their prime rates and so on in order to sort of help the property market and sort of boost uh, domestic demand. Another part has been the lockdown, etc. So you know, sort of the bearish case seems to be obvious. You know, where can the, but the thing is, you know, where can this trade go wrong? You know, what are the risks and you know what's sort of the other side? Well, there is plenty of risks. Right. First of all, uh, this is, I find the situation similar to Japan. China is in a place similar to Japan was a decade ago or so, right? Uh, if you remember at some point, dollar yen was 75. Now it's like pushed 150. 50. Not counting all the carry you would have earned by being long dollar against yen all this time, right? Yep. And, and that's the other thing. So buying dollar yuan is now uh, positive carry. It's not negative carry. It's positive carry now. And I think the carry will keep widening. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, China will Japanify because it's going through like a real estate bubble burst, maybe. But on the other hand, China is, a, as people never get tired of saying, is a centralized economy. They honestly can do whatever the hell they want. They have dollar reserves 
enough dollar reserves to, if they want to strengthen their currency. They have all sorts of measures and controls that can manipulate the currency in any way they want, whatever, whatever suits them at the moment. And it's hard for me to guess what will suit them. And they do have current account surplus to back it up. Like you don't have a, you see, you only will have a currency crisis, uncontrollable currency crisis if you have balance of payment crisis. I don't think China can have a BOP crisis. Balance yeah. of, they're not a debtor, they're credit. They're not going to have a BOP crisis. They can do whatever they want. That's why, for example, with Japan, it was such a hard thesis to see yen weakening. And, and, and I got, by the way, yen weakening right between 2012 and 2015, but I didn't get it right this time. I didn't. I had very little of the portion of yen weakening in 2021 that I didn't get that trade at all because I was actually not really thinking the dollar would strengthen so much. And now I'm thinking that maybe yen has space to strengthen, but that's all beside the point. What I'm saying is that despite the fact that yen was also a surplus counter in terms of trade, right? All these years, this currency, its currency managed to erode tremendously. And I think so, but... And, and again, they could manage, they had plenty of opportunities to manage this process in either direction. And they did. Mm. They managed some moments of strengthening, they managed this. They did actually a incredibly good job managing it because they made fortunes on their managing their currency or their dollar reserves. Like Japan, just totally like the best hedge fund in the world, how they traded the dollar. They kept like buying dollars, selling dollars when they were expensive and buying dollars when they were cheap. And now they're beginning to buy dollars and again, right, to manage their currency the other way. Yeah. Sorry. So they're beginning now to yeah, sell, sell dollars. dollars. Yeah. To sell dollars and buy yen back, right? And I I think that will prove to be a good trade in the near horizon, right? So so they they done great, but uh, and I don't see why China will not in the long run be trying to do the same thing. Kind of manage manage extreme moves, but probably more likely to allow depreciation than not. Mm -hmm. But there are so many different risks. And if I'm wrong on global growth and there is some kind of restart refueling in China, there is still a lot of space for China to grow. There is a lot of potentially like for domestic demand in China, for consumers in China. I mean, they still there's still a very big gap in terms of per capita GDP of China and US. We're not talking about total GDP gap to have a bigger population, but per capita, right? Imagine them working to close this gap. There is so much space for China to do all sorts of things. Yeah. So, right. so risks to this position and what I'm trying to say are almost infinite. Like there is, you can't even list all the risks. No, so so one thing that the one thing that was actually interesting was that so over the course of the last month, um, the Chinese FX reserve balance actually went higher and not lower. So it's so at least what it suggested was they, they were not, um, or at least not yet, um, the PBOC was not yet stepping into the market in order to purchase. Well, well the balance went high. I imagine, that, I imagine the balance went high because they had a very high trade surplus. Or, or, or that, yeah. Because part of the reason is they're in a really slow down situation, right, with the lockdowns. They probably didn't have a lot of imports. They didn't have Chinese traveling overseas and spending money. So I think they just current account kept uh, there is no way for current account not to turn into capital account because something has to be done with all those dollars, right? Okay, I know. I, I, I guess it's fair. But 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 the other thing that we have seen with uh, Japan is every time the MOF and the BOJ step in in order to buy buy in in order to buy the yen, it sort of seems to work for say a day, maybe two days, and then 
It is, and then, and then you know, the, the market reverses it, it continues. Well, at first, yes, but in the long run, they're always right. That's what I, I, I would, I would invite people to look at the decades of history of intervention and see. Yes, first market fakes them, but actually, they tend to be right. But but do like, you... like on a given because you kind of they kind of start fighting against the trend and people fade them. Same thing was when again was strengthening almost twenty years ago when yen was going like close to parity and they were vice versa selling yen to buy dollars and people like ah uh -huh, market just keeps running through but eventually they accumulated those dollars and made hundreds of billions of dollars on them right so I think I think this is what's happening right now yes the first few interventions will be faded. But I think in the long run, they'll prove to be correct. And the trend will, at some point, the more positive young trend will be established. I just don't know if this point is here yet. Okay. But I think, I think like, I will be surprised if yen will not see parity. Like, I mean, 100 dollar yen in the next decade. Oh, wow. So, so you're, you're saying the yen is going to strengthen against the dollar? At some point, yes. But I don't know what point. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, you know, moving on, I wanted to talk more about sort of general trading process, etc. So, you know, one thing that I was wondering was, so um, I think when your book initially came out, you sort of, uh, you did an interview with uh, Michael Green and you sort of described how um, FX moves in accordance, in, in accordance to market regimes. So, you know, with, within your process, you know, how do you think about um, identifying various market regimes and then risk management within these market, within different market regimes? Well, this is one of the hardest thing to do because um, it's very there is no like formal definition like oh we're in this market regime. And I was actually recently talking about this that we might be seeing some shifts away because we're in this regime. We actually talked about this regime even in my first book, which I wrote in 2014 and it came out in 2015. That's perfect trade. I talk about this inflation fear regime. Eight years ago. I, I identify this regime in, in conjunction to like years like 2000, when what happens is that stock market begins to respond to bond market. So bond market does not care to stock about stock market, it does its own thing. Something hawkish happens in the bond market and stock market sells off. And that's what we saw in the last few months, which very contrary to regimes we've seen before, when more like bond market took a cue from stock market. Stocks down, so bonds go up because stocks down means crisis, means bonds go up. That We, we saw none of that this year, right? We could have Stock market stocks wipe out on the same day as bonds wipe out all the time. If anything, correlation is like incredibly high right now I mean, stocks and bonds. But it's, this correlation is not is because bonds lead the way. You get some hawkish news and stocks sell off because it means more hiking, right? So uh, I think we're beginning to see. I'm beginning to see some signs of maybe we'll be soon rotating away from this regime and stocks will start leading the way, which will probably. I mean, that is usually the regime which is more um, kind of concurrent with easing policy. When stocks start when like with like, oh, stocks sold off, we're gonna get more easing, right? Like when you get away from this Fed, like kind of on its own, in its own la la land, we're gonna hike because of the numbers with two year leg, yeah. right? So, um, uh, but it's 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 very much intuition, yes, and you have to have a lot of patience. There's a lot of this is like, for example, we talked about inflation at the very beginning of this conversation. It's very easy to be faked out and say like, this is it. You get like one really good trading day, everything is seems to be in your favor, and you start fantasizing about every single next economic number coming in your favor for the rest of the year. <laughs>
I don't really know what I what else I can say besides just be yeah. cautious and stick with a long term plan and not get over over excited when one thing went in your favor. Like, just don't get too comfortable with markets. This is what I remember. Like when there are days when I like, wake up feeling really good about the market. Like I got it. Things are going in my favor. Everything is coming together. Like you know this feeling. You wake up and you feel like I'm eager to see the market because everything has been playing in my favor. And then there's always the days when you end up being totally wiped out. <laughs> No, exa exactly. And, and, you know, within the, you know, within that, so, you know, the, so one, um, you sort of tell you, you know, within your macro voices interview that you did last month, you also mentioned how, I mean, a sort of price action is price action and you don't really, um, let price action affect your thinking of, uh, well, what's going on in terms of economic fundamentals, um, you know, just on a similar note, um, you know, how do you think about, um, sell-offs, especially so. For example, March twenty twenty, you know, market every single day moves say five, six, seven, eight, ten percent. So, so when you when you look at that kind of way, or when you look at that kind of um volatility, how do you how you know how do you think in first principles versus second principles? Because you know, one thing that a lot of people suffer from is analysis paralysis, where they spend too long looking at every fine detail, you know, methodology of the number coming out, how the the different weightings, et cetera. Um, you know, one of the George Soros quotes is, or one of the things he's credited with saying is that he does as little work as possible so that, you know, he doesn't sort of fall in love with the position. He does enough to know well, what has to go on or what's going to go on. And then, you know, he goes ahead and puts on the trade. So how do you, now how do you think about first principle thinking versus second principle thinking, especially within times of turmoil or crisis? Well, analysis paralysis is definitely not my problem. So first of all, I don't have a bone with my body that would have analysis paralysis. I am a person of action. If I see a trade I want to do, I do it. Yeah. It's it's like you cannot keep me keep me away from the trade if I if I want to do a trade. Yeah. And I have no fear of financial markets. I'll just be honest about this. I have no because it's a different like I don't have this kind of irrational fear like I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm like, okay, well, I'm putting the trade on. Maybe I'll make money, maybe I'll lose money, but I don't get paralyzed that way. It just doesn't happen to me. I don't panic in financial markets. Mm -hmm. For better or for worse, because of like again, my work is not to get over my skills, right? Not to how to how I always have to be very rigorous about risk managing myself. Not about like I don't have that problem. When when I see when I see something like super volatile markets, I guess my basic principle is. Don't worry about which way the trade jump, where it was 10 minutes ago, where it will be 10 minutes from now. Does the price right now represent value to me relative to the portfolio I have? And it's very important to even say like, you know what, what I had in this portfolio is irrelevant. Maybe I need to cut some positions which are losing, good, bad, losing position, winning position. Maybe I need to cut them to put this position on because this is right now the highest value for my portfolio because that will be shifting all the time. What is the highest value for my portfolio? I know I can put this position on if I have a strong reason to think like two years from now, it'll be in a different place than where it is today. Like for example, in 2020, if oil two years from now is trading at $35 and you think like one way or another pandemic will be resolved, will result and probably not give me $35 a barrel. Same thing now I'm looking at interest rates two years or three years forward and projecting like 4% rates and I'm saying, I think they're going to be zero. That's what I focus on. Not like where the recent jump was. I was like, what is the size of what size? What should be the size of my positions in my portfolio for this time duration? And then I don't really care so much about 
10% up and down jumps on a daily basis. Because if I plan to hold position for two years, I have to be prepared for those moves anyway. It doesn't matter whether they happen over one day or over a month. I still have to be able to withstand the drawdown. So I have to be prepared to withstand big drawdowns over any time horizon if I'm to hold it. So I have to think about well, how I'm going to size it, what my portfolio needs, and look at kind of more of a snapshot than thinking about like, oh, wait, I just missed a really great trade. This already moved 5%. Okay, I missed buying at 5% cheaper, but is this still a good trade today? This is a very important way of thinking, I think, in crisis. Just kind of take cut all the nonsense, all the noise, focus on what can I buy today that will be worth more two years from now. No, that's uh, that's completely fair. Um, you know, one thing that you know, one thing that's that's interesting about your career is that you know you got started on the various prop trading desks, and then you know you've moved on uh, to manage your own funds. So you know, um, you know, so so one, you know, what was that? Uh, I'm generally curious, but what was that shift kind of like? Um, in terms of in terms of uh, say your money management style or your trading style, and then two, you know, what is something that you you wish you knew before you started your fund? Well. Yeah, I went through several shifts in my career, and I think every stage was in its own way interesting because I started like as a junior trader on market making desk, then a senior trader on franchise derivatives desk, then I started to be proprietary trader in the bank, then I was hedge fund manager, then I was managing my own money, then I was hedge fund manager again. In yeah. the end, I found that eventually I can adjust to any environment, but there are various bumps in the environment. Like, for example, when you are uh, you have different hurdles in different environments. Like for, when you're in a bank prop desk, you have to kind of let go the fact that you still have bosses. You might have some non-economic constraints. Like for example, bank could say like, we're reducing risk. You cannot be holding this, right? And I was like, wait a second, my portfolio is doing fine. But you have all, you have various things that will be interfering with what you're doing. Yeah. What I think you'd fail to appreciate working for the bank is how easy you have it because you have all the bank's infrastructure and you don't have to think about infrastructure when you do if you're doing it on your own in a hedge fund. And I think that's something definitely I miss from my bank days, having all the infrastructure in place and not having to worry about keeping the lights on because there is tons of effort going into middle office, back office systems and just general credit lines, funding, everything is already taken care of for you, right? So I miss that portion. It actually makes life easier. Um, the advantage of being proprietary trading is that you're your own boss and you have to, uh, sorry, when you're a hedge fund or your own money, both, in both cases, you need to uh, be uh, kind of in, in, impose your own self-disciplines. I think when you're just trading your own money, it is uh, important to kind of not get, as I say, over your skis and not blow up to stay because when you have no controls and nobody tells you what to do, it's too easy to just overstretch because nothing stops you from doing that. When you are running investor money in a hedge fund, there are other hurdles. You have to be, you get like, for example, if you're losing money or something is problematic in your fund, you get, or sometimes you get investors to call you and question, right? And you start, it's very important to just stay with the fact that the first and foremost is my strategy and my desire to make money. Pleasing my investors, that's how that's how I please my investors, by making money for them. Money. Not by giving good, good talks to them, not by whatever, giving many explanations why I lost money. The way to please my investors is to make money. That's what I owe them, right? So, and I think many people get distracted from trading 
they want by seeking the investor approval. For example, worrying like, oh, if I have a too big drawdown this month, this investor might pull their money. How do I get them to keep their money? How do I get the new chunk in? So this is very much, so staying on mission, and I think I'm pretty good at that, honestly. I'm pretty good at this. I'm not saying it's always psychologically easy, but I think I am really strive to stay on mission when it comes up. I make plenty of mistakes. I can easily be wrong about markets, but I stay on mission in terms of I'm not going to, uh, not do what I do because my investors are nervous. Again, as I said, there's only one way to please them in the long run. Yeah, by, by making money. And, and you know, the other thing that's interesting about, you know, your your career is that you hold a PhD in mathematics. Um, and so do you do you find that, you know, your your process ends up being more quantitative or have you found out that, or and it has the quantitative um, background or the skill set that you developed in academia helped you within your trading career? More of a like way of thinking. Obviously, sometimes if whenever because I don't do anything quantitative myself, but on occasion we use some quantitative models or they've been touched. It's easier for me to understand what people are talking about and just kind of have an intuition about it. But mostly it's just uh, being able to process formal logic of events. I think that's been one of my biggest edges. That like I have a very, I have ability to process formal logic and say like, well, if you take these assumptions, these are the conclusions you reach, like them or not, but this is the conclusion. Because I think very often what I see people agree with a certain set of assumptions, and then but disagree with conclusions that follow via irrefutable logic from those assumptions. Yeah. So very often I'm wrong on my assumptions, right? But when I follow logic of assumptions, at least like I know. This is 80%. If A and B is 80% chance, then A plus B is whatever, 64% chance. And if that event has that kind of likelihood, right? Whatever, you can think about it different ways. I call it like the logical nodes, likelihood nodes, things that we kind of can agree that things are more, more likely to be true than not and build a training strategy in it, we should have positive expectation. Uh, so that type of, the fact that I don't get like, thrown off this probably my mathematical training helps me to stay calm and logical in such situations okay got it no 100 um you know with that alex thank you so much for being on the podcast um before i let you go you know do you, do you have any closing thoughts um you know, before we wrap up um well it is definitely an interesting environment with a lot of geopolitical uncertainties and a lot of uh um, uncertainties in domestic and global economy and i think as always in such environments this is a good time to think long term don't be caught up i think this is the this type of environments give advantage to recognizing long-term value versus being caught up in daily volatility yep 100 percent. and you guys can find and listeners can find um alex on twitter at a gurevich 23 that's a-g-u-r-e-v-i-c-h 23 um now, with that, Alex, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was fantastic having you on. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.